0: Uh, At least uh, 70 of you have so far, Uh, so thank you for already listening. But today I have with me Dr. Rob Thompson, a historian at Army University Press and a specialist in the Vietnam War. So that should tell you that we are talking Vietnam today. And Dr. Thompson, how are you this afternoon? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, you know, Vietnam is one of those touchy subjects still in U.S. history. Um, we, we we still remember, uh, you know, veterans coming back and not being widely accepted um, because of the, the huge anti-war movement, um, you know, how the war expanded outside the, the borders of Vietnam into neighboring Cambodia and Laos. You know, so I mean, there, there was a lot not to like about this war domestically, um, I think. Uh, so let's, let's just jump right into it. Um, from what I could gather, our initial kind of support of, uh, I guess, conflict uh, would be like in 1955 when we were still propping up the French.
1: Uh, yes. Um, and as a government employee, before I can comment, I need to give the boilerplate. Stuff. Okay, absolutely. So, uh, uh, the views expressed are those of myself and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army or the US government. All right. <laughs> now, with that out of the way, yes. Yeah, so you have the French in Indochina trying to retake a lost colony. And you hear the United States deciding, yes, they'll support the French over Vietnamese nationalism because the fear of communism.
0: Yeah, and that that kind of brings out the domino theory, you know, that that idea that if if one of these nations fell to communism, the entire region uh, would fall to communism, uh, which I always thought kind of funny uh, because there were so many different strains of kind of socialist thought throughout these these countries that they really couldn't all just get on one page to do that um right. but you know that's just amusing that I, I thought it was kind of weird from a i guess a national defense and uh diplomacy standpoint for americans like come on man you're, you're all pretty smart you should know that
1: they're all not on the same page here um yeah but why,
0: like yeah i'm sorry
1: yeah no, no, my apologies. Sorry. I'm so <laughs> eager to talk about Vietnam because I spent so much time not talking about Vietnam. Uh, but yeah, that, that's uh, one of the first things that hit me as the strangest when I'm like, learning about the Cold War, and especially Vietnam, is like this prevailing view amongst uh, the U.S. government that Moscow controlled everything. That every country that was exploring communism or in the middle of a nationalist revolution was being controlled out of Moscow. And so... It, it, it's not in, like we'll get into it. Yeah, later. But it, it is fascinating to me. Take the U.S. like forever to realize. Oh wait, these countries don't all listen to Moscow, and in some cases, they do the opposite of what Moscow says.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's uh like kind of a it's a weird thing because like you, you know, our our smartest people were in national defense. You know, uh, in the in the post World War II area, supposedly, um, you know, and. Uh, a lot of these countries kind of tailored that, that socialist thought to what they needed to kind of make it catch fire in their own, in their own country. So, like, what worked in Moscow wasn't going to work in, you know, Hanoi. It wasn't going to work in, uh, like, Phnom Penh. It wasn't going to work in, in some of these other countries. So, yeah, it's, that was always a weird thing. Uh, and it, honestly, as, as much history as I read, I, that, thought, that, that kind of idea just popped up, like, a few months ago. I was like, why? You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but so like this was just a colonial conflict at first, correct? It was the French trying to to retake all the uh, you know French Indochina after the end of the Second World War. Um, but why stay there? Like what was what was the main draw for the French in you know
1: that part of the world? So you had the French lose Indochina to the Japanese in like 1940. Um and after the Second World War, uh, with a lot of U.S. material support and tacit, like sure, go back at, into there, the French decided to reassert control of the lost, the lost colony, so to speak. Um, and you had this happening with the British are doing it elsewhere, uh, the Dutch. and So all these European countries that have been kicked out of their overseas holdings by the Japanese are all trying to reassert control as fast as they can. But we have these nationalist movements that were ignited by the Second World War. And you have Moscow basically saying we're going to support any country that embraces nationalist revolution. Um, so. With the French, I mean, Indochina to them means rubber plantations. That's pretty important uh, above everything else. It's kind of why the Japanese go there, too. Um, and there's, but there's also kind of like that restoring their honor. That they had been occupied by the Germans, they had lost these possessions, and so they're trying to show that France is still strong. They're trying to like restore their own honor, um, probably more so in North Africa, like in Al- Algeria, because that was a, a much closer to home, more francophone like uh, possession to them. But and you have that this, similar things happening with Vietnam. It's about saving face, restoring their honor. And yeah, there's some financial assets to be reacquired. Okay, so,
0: you know, by, you know, uh, probably the late 50s at this point, things are going pretty poorly for the French there, right? Um, and, and at what point do they decide, hey, we need to get the hell out of here and they pass it off to, to this, you
1: know, the US? So and it's, uh you have like, almost two different wars happening in French Indochina. They're largely successful at restoring control in what would have, what eventually emerged as South Vietnam. So think like around Saigon, uh, they're able to uh, pacify that pretty well, where if you're only in that part of Indochina, you're like, oh, the French are actually doing this. If you go north uh, to like Hanoi, you have a totally different war going on and one where it's hard to tell if the French are going to prevail because that's where uh, the Viet Minh are strongest. In the South, there's a lot more nationalist groups. Uh, the Viet Minh made the mistake of uh, pissing off a lot of them, and the French exploited that. But in the North, it is the Viet Minh. They're okay. it, So that helps them a lot. And so for the uh, it's not... Uh, it's hard to see who is going to prevail until Dien Bien Phu. And when Dien Bien Phu happens, it wrecks everything for the French. Uh, they go from, we're like, you know, this close to maybe getting that decisive battle and the Viet Minh will just give up or at least we'll control too much and their their sway over the people will diminish. Um, I mean, the French army is conducting operations in like... Uh, the Central Highland part of Vietnam, the province that I study, Phú Yên. There's big operations there to pacify them, um, so they're like going all out. But then when Dien Bien Phu happens, it's like okay, forget this. We, we, it's another one of these defeats that means everything's kind of like starting fresh. And instead of starting fresh, it's like just get it, it, we're done. The French went out, um, and so then it quickly goes from what's supporting. Uh, Reassertion of control in Indochina to just abandoning it They're getting out as quickly as they can and then you have um, the, like the peace treaties and everything where the other major powers broker uh, and that's when we get the two separate Vietnams so uh, these... broke
0: essentially broke the French will to want to stay there like how, yeah. how, why was it such a
1: devastating loss well, uh for the French, it was like they got bested in a conventional battle against this what they had perceived as a ragtag group of Vietnamese communists that you know where are they going to get the support to take on the French army and yeah. they do they get they they're well supported by the chinese uh they basically out think the french they uh the French kind of like. The whole point of like Dien Bien Phu is to bait the Viet Minh to come out, fight the French, like, you know, toe toe to toe and then destroy them with superior French firepower. The Americans kind of do the same thing later, but they don't, they they completely underestimate the Viet Minh resourcefulness. The Viet Minh bring in artillery. The Viet Minh are able to destroy a lot of the, the French defenses that the French had thought would, you know, destroy the Viet Minh. And so they're surprised by that. Um, it's definitely not the outcome they expected. And to help understand that thought, uh, Nguyen Gi- uh, the, v- the Viet Minh under Nguyen Nguyen Jap had suffered some pretty humiliating defeats against the French army. Um, their campaigns around Hanoi and the Red River area had been disastrous. And so the French are thinking like, we got them on the heels. Yeah. But, in a way, they said the French were thinking they're setting a trap, but the Viet Minh are arguably also setting a trap. Um, yeah, I mean, they you can kind of like
0: see it's that colonial like uh, master and underling kind of thought process too. Like the French are like, we're the French, we're a modern military, uh, and like you said, this is just a ragtag group of, of uh, you know ill ill-equipped communists that we you know. We, we just got to keep going at them, going at them, and they'll they'll fold. But I mean, this is I mean, you could say that the you know the North Vietnamese you know have arguably one of the best uh, guerrilla movements you know campaigns to against colonialism in history. Uh, you know they were they were very uh, kind of rope a dope like they took their lumps and they would bounce off and you know hit where they needed to and then they would draw back where they needed to. Uh, you know I mean it, it was it seemed like it was a pretty, uh, uh, you know, successful movement overall. Um, but so the French, is, they've left, and, uh, you know, now the United States is kind of in charge of the anti-communist efforts there now. And in 1961, Kennedy set up the Strategic Hamlet Program. Uh, what Can you explain that for listeners, like, what that was?
1: All right, so... The French leave, the Americans are like, well, we're not leaving because communism, we're scared of it. Uh, So the whole larger policy is containment. They're afraid that if one country falls to communism, all the neighboring countries will. And then the next thing you know, the world's communist. Yeah. So there's that fear. um, And the Korean War really, like, cements that in their mind. So... In Vietnam, that initially, like under the Kennedy administration, it's like let's help the Vietnamese fight their own war. We'll go in, we'll train them. American advisors had been there during the French, but now it's more hands-on. And so, initially, it's the the, the train. The small groups under MAG, which a uh, military assistance advisory group, go and they train the v- the Vietnamese, they train the army, security forces, and that's like basically trying to give. Vietnam, South Vietnam, this framework uh, to defend itself. Um, then, within a couple of years of that, you have um, under Neo Dinh Diem, the president of what then becomes South Vietnam, implementing the Strategic Hamlet Program. And that's uh, this, it's supposed to be like executed by the South Vietnamese. It's fully funded by the United States. And essentially, what they're trying to do is separate uh, the communist insurgents from the population, especially out in the countryside, uh, where the government is the weakest. And it's some people will tell you it's a program that was going to work. They said to give it more time. Um, Critics rightly point out that there was a lot of corruption and so a lot of that money didn't actually go to uh, protecting these hamlets or actually building them correctly. And what I mean by that is like, so a strategic hamlet, is not just this like a uh, collection of homes together, they're closely together in an area that's not familiar to a lot of the inhabitants. They've been relocated and they're fortified, you know, with uh, various uh, t- uh, barbed wire, um, think like palisades, that kind of stuff they're armed and they're supposed to be able to defend themselves against guerrillas some of them work some of them don't get the, that enough funding to work um but they don't make the people happy mostly because they've been relocated yeah so i mean that I, I saw that was probably uh, the biggest
0: uh you know they, that was a, that was like shooting the movement in the foot you know that or the war effort in the foot when you're you know you're fighting a, a counterinsurgency and uh you know, the whole point is to get the people on your side, but you're pulling them out of their homes. You're setting them to places where they might not, might not even speak the, speak the same language as, as what's spoken, you know? Um, Cause you know, you had a lot of the other, uh, like, I, I don't know the proper, I guess, cultural uh, groupings in Vietnam, but, you know, you had like the, the Hill people, uh, like the, the Hmong, you know, and, and, and a lot of the other smaller groups, uh, that maybe didn't see eye to eye, you know, eye to eye with the, with the larger culture, you know, larger cultural groupings in Vietnam.
1: So like you, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, yeah. And it really mad, like, it depends on where you look too. Some people point out that uh, these uh, strategic hamlets where the population was predominantly like Catholic, a minority group, they resisted better against the communists. Um, but it really depends on which province you're looking at, the leadership. Um, and that gets back to like the corruption. So yeah. you, you only had good leadership if there wasn't corruption. And so like in Fuyen, for example, they had a really good province chief. There wasn't a lot of corruption, but he also did things his own way. So the big thing that the, um, the communist movement had was like propaganda. They could go into villages, they could tell people You know what they were going to do they could provide some assistance um and he needed to find a way to stop that so what he did he basically created a copy but did it on behalf of the saigon government and some sources say that worked pretty well um but by and large the strategic hamlet program was like this colossal failure um and what really made that uh like uh, probably like soon as dm is assassinated it all falls apart. People like relocate themselves, some of them are overrun by guerrillas. But by like 64, 65, when like North Vietnamese like uh, conventional forces come south, they're able to like overrun them, like you know, they're not even there, like little speed yeah. bumps. So that brings into question just how like how secure were they? Okay, and you already mentioned you know
0: um, hopefully, I said that correctly. Uh, I, I don't do well with some names. <laughs> um, now he was president of, Sa- yeah, he was president of South Vietnam, and uh, I th- I think it's it's easy to say he ran a pretty corrupt uh, system down there. Uh, there was a lot of cronyism, um, and you know he didn't do a good job of hiding it
1: either yeah he's an interesting character um there there's so many books there's so many different views he's probably one of the big things about the vietnam War so that people get to like really agree on um but i've read some like convincing books like uh cauldron of resistance i think like jessica chapman's a really good book to read about it because as she correctly points out in south vietnam there was so many different options for the united states they could have endorsed uh any any one of these groups and gotten like you know them to lead but they picked neo Diem. uh he was familiar to the united states because he was educated in the u.s the french didn't like him the french told the u.s don't don't bother with <laughs> them but <laughs> the united states doesn't listen to the french of course um, yeah, they do and uh there's a guy named ed lansdale edward lansdale was able to like Talk to DM and get stuff out of him. Get stuff to go the way the Americans want it. But his brother, who's kind of like his, who takes care of him, is kind of like the the muscle. Does a whole lot of stuff behind the scenes. New, he's where the corruption comes in, or at least from some accounts, he's the one that you can that the, the money disappears with. Okay. So it's hard to say just how bad DM was. Was he? You know, I don't want to say dictator, but he definitely wasn't. You know, your your typical like like U.S. president. He was not. He there was definitely a part where he was doing it for himself. Yeah. So that's what a lot of people call it, like the Saigon regime. Well, I mean, what led to his assassination? So there is a lot of questions in american circles about where south vietnam is going they all the, they blame all the shortcomings on and you know, diem and his government uh there's like uh, i guess the, the cia and all these other uh, us entities are starting starting to question like well if he's not it we can't wait yeah so uh, it's all these little things like the strategic hamlet program not going the right way you have um, the uh, communist movement growing in the countryside, and so but it, uh, there's still debate about like how high up the decision goes in the U.S. Um, whether you know John F. Kennedy said, "Yeah, do it." There's he's always been able to, like leave it, uh, Historians been able to distance him from that decision. I don't know how much longer that'll hold up. Yeah, as you know, archive, archival stuff becomes more uh, accessible. Um, but ultimately, yeah, he's deposed. He's assassinated in a coup. Uh, his brothers, you know, assassinated as well. Uh, and then we just get like a circus of short-term dictators uh, from the from the military, and that's where stuff really starts <clears throat> falling apart. There's no real leadership. The Strategic Hamlet Program, which was on its, like you know, kind of not necessarily on its last legs then, but completely falls apart. There's sources I have from like the province I say it's like don't bother sending stuff because we're not going to get it because everything's too crazy, which is the same stuff they had said uh, when uh, Gambian Fu happened. They're like, well, without the French here, like there's no way to get stuff anywhere, so don't bother. Yeah, and so there's like this chaos that ensues, and that just helps the insurgency because Saigon can't do anything right. Yeah. So would you say at this point, you know, the South Vietnamese
0: government essentially was uh, the areas around Saigon. And once you got past that, it was essentially ineffective.
1: It's it's effective in the cities, um, by and large, almost all the cities it can control. Um, so that that helps. It's once it gets out of the cities, it's where it, its power just yeah. fades away. And so that's really what the, the fight is over. It's trying to control the space outside the cities. The communist movement wants to take over those cities because they know when they do that, they're going to win. Yeah. The Saigon government trying to keep its hold on those cities but spread outward. Okay. So
0: now at this point, we're still working under like the, you know, advisory role, right? The U.S. forces. Um, you know, Dinh you know, Diem is, is killed, and now we've got these series of kind of like military strongmen, and then we have the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Um, now, the way I learned it was this is what led to the military escalation of Vietnam, and it was uh,
1: a farce, so to speak. Like it, it, it didn't happen. Right. Uh, there's so much conjecture with that, and I am. It's hard for me to take a side, sort of, because I, I, pardon me, there's so much stuff I know that hasn't been touched yet. And there's so many people who've argued that it was made up, but other people who've been able to say, well, there was like a a super, like not a supernatural, but like a natural event happening in the ocean that kind of, you know, that could help explain this. Um, So I've always tried to like not take a side just because as a historian, I don't feel comfortable doing so without knowing that all that unknown yeah, um, so I'll, I just know that there was definitely an incident you know, uh, between a U.S. destroyer and North Vietnamese patrol boats at least once. Whether, you know, other events ha- like that happen later, I don't really know. Um, but the Gulf of Tonkin is definitely one of those major turning points. We get the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which is really important. Um, and so it's definitely a, a part of that escalation i don't i would not say it's the one there's like multiple things happening that's just one of them um there's like two other big events Uh, golf of um you have uh communist insurgents uh uh, mortaring uh, u.s uh air force installations and killing u.s servicemen you have uh the battle of at bach where uh people's liberation armed forces the the sons of the viet Minh, essentially uh completely embarrass the army of the republic of vietnam uh the army of the republic of vietnam is fully equipped with u.s you know vehicles equipment you know fairly like high-tech stuff and then they they lose to a bunch of people they just like these are like farmers kids and whatnot and that just that's where the United States goes. Okay, South Vietnam can't do this, and, and so they're... and now we have to kind
0: of uh, fill those roles that the like Arvin and the South Vietnamese government couldn't, right? Um, right. right. And and that's kind of uh, you know uh, you know one on one hand we know why they're doing it. Like we know why the U.S. government's doing this. You know, we we have to stop this. You know this. Western, you know, this capitalist nation from falling to communism. You know, the, the whole, you know, containment and the domino theory, and you know, I, I we know why, but it seems like the U.S. government uh, didn't really, they weren't prepared for kind of like the blowback that would come with military escalation later on. Um, and, you know, domestically, just just with the you know the people here in the United States. Um, and again, it goes back to those smart people that we thought would look at it all and they're just kind of focused on one thing. Um, um, Wiz kids. Yeah. So uh, it was in 1965 64 um, you know, we land our first 3,500 Marines near Da Nang, right? Uh, right. And, that's, and that's kind of the end of the military advisor role before we jump into like full combatants, right?
1: Yeah, so that's so you have the attacks on U.S. air installations. You've had the Gulf of Tonkin at Bach has ha- already happened. Um, and so when the U.S. Marines land near Da Nang uh, on China Beach, that's like the moment it ceases to become just a South Vietnamese conflict. We don't have the U.S. on offensive operations yet. But now you have combat troops to protect U.S. assets in South Vietnam. There's actual you know, ground troops there. So that's like the, yeah, that, that's, if we look at like the terms of like escalation, we're like very, very close. To the U.S. being totally, you know, yeah. involved physically.
0: Now, as we start increasing our, uh, you know, the number of military personnel there, you know, William Westmoreland, um, you know, he's he's kind of a, uh a, a lightning rod for a lot of his uh, military historians. Um, and I think the biggest thing, you know, what I, I thought was interesting was his three-point plan for, for victory in Vietnam. Uh, commitment of U.S. and, you know, uh, the way this one pu- publication said, other free world forces um, to halt <laughs> the military. Yeah. To halt the military losses that plagued Arvin in 1965. Two, U.S. and allies launched major offensives to seize the initiative destroy guerrilla and other organized enemy forces. Um, This was considered complete when the enemy was worn down on its back foot and driven out of major population centers. And three, the enemy persists. uh, 12 to 18 months would be needed to eliminate enemy forces in remote areas. Now, for a place that's kind of as diverse, uh, you know, culturally and, and geographically, I mean, you have... You know, like you said, you have the Central Highlands. You've got thick, you know, jungle. You've got, you know, it, Vietnam has the gamut of a, you know, geographic top, you know, topography. Um, you know, how how I don't understand, like how what 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 kind of man was William Westmoreland, to where he said I can do three things, and that's gonna make that's gonna allow
1: us vi- to have victory in Vietnam. So yeah, like you point out, William Westmoreland is one like the most controversial figures. That comes out of the Vietnam War. Um, a lot of critics of him. Um, I tend to err on was he perfect? No, but he did have a plan because a lot of people say uh, he, had, he had no idea what he was doing, but he did, whether that plan worked. Okay, we can debate that. But I mean, he had served in the Second World War, he had developed uh, counterinsurgency programs at West, Mo- uh, West Point, I believe. Um, but, so, I like to think he knew what he was doing. Was it overly ambitious, or you know yeah, um, probably not um appreciating the enemy as much as one could have done um again, uh, that maybe that goes back to well, the French army, what is that like oh so like that's not where like yeah, they beat the French, so sort did of the Germans, whatever, yeah, um. So I think maybe some of that has to do with it, and then you have the U.S. Army on like the like the cusp of like these new like new doctrine, like uh, helicopters, all this new technology. So there's like you know, for the U.S. Army, every reason to believe that they can overcome these guerrillas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there
0: there was a lot of faith put into the air cav. Uh, you know, yeah. with with uh, you know aerial insertion by helicopters. Um, you know, it was a quick way to get from point A to point B, um, you know, and, you know, let, let's talk about the U.S. military. So we're, we're in Vietnam. And, you know, at this time, we have a draft military, you know, uh, how lo- like were they two year contracts, roughly?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think what the list. Oh, this is where I get a little like uh, my brain, I have to wreck my brain. Um, yeah, initially. How long was that? 60 months maybe not 60 months wow.
0: i know there's been a, i read uh the killing zone by downs which was a great book um and also a bright shining lie so uh, full oh. disclosure those are the two books i've read about vietnam um but you know i've, I've seen a lot where essentially you went through basic training uh, you went through your MOS school, you did your time in Vietnam. And by, if you survived, right. like you were essentially done at that point. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's a a, a way to carry long-term success through uh, because, you know, I, I'm a veteran myself. I, I spent 16 years in, and, you know, we, our strength was the leaders that had deployed before and able to kind of coach, mentor, train younger soldiers as we, you know, kept going back to Afghanistan and back to Iraq, you know. It was a sharing of that kind of build-up knowledge. Um, It didn't seem like you could really maintain that with a a two-year, 18-month and two-year enlistment, um, you know, and and continuing uh, operations. The one quote I found was, we weren't in Vietnam for 10 years. We were in Vietnam for a year 10 times.
1: Yeah. So... Um, Yeah, I think enlistment was what I think three years active duty, um, and that's like before the draft. Uh, I don't think the uh, I don't remember the like the numbers for the draft. Um, But yeah, it's not a lot of time. it's enough time to be trained. But the way what really undoes it for Vietnam is how they decide to rotate combat forces. Uh so instead of sending a unit in together and then rotating that unit back to the United States and replacing it with another one, they decide to keep the commands the units in Vietnam and they're going to rotate the personnel out. And that's where oh. everything like breaks down um because you lose unit cohesion, uh you you know, there's a <clears throat> a larger disconnect between the veterans who were there, you know, and then the, the replacements. And so there's a whole lot of, like, stuff about that, how it, it corrects morale. Um, and there's a reason why the U.S. doesn't do that after Vietnam. It was, like, one of these, yeah. what seemed like a great idea on paper, but in practice was, like, the quickest way to destroy an army.
0: Yeah, I mean, that... the. Uh... The issues with morale and, and, uh, kind of like institutional learning led to our all volunteer force in the early eighties. Right. Um, or at least that's what my Sergeant majors told me. Uh, and I, I'm smart enough to know not to argue with them while I was in uniform, but, uh, but now, yeah, I mean, it, it, it I, you, it's going to be problematic when you, like you said, you have your command structure left, you know, in theater and you keep, you just rotate replacements in as needed or, yeah. um, you know, and at the, the higher levels, you had, you know, mid-level and senior officers that would spend years there, um, just kind of gradually moving up the command structure. Uh, but you have a whole new crop of soldier, sailors, marine, airmen uh, rolling in to do their year tour and then essentially go back home and out process. <laughs> it just it doesn't seem like you're going to yeah. keep a lot of institutional knowledge there, which uh, will hurt a counterinsurgency um, fight. Okay, so we have, we've got, uh, you know, America's in there now, All, our, our combined forces, Army, Navy, Marines, everything, air power, uh, which we would come more and more to rely on. Um, but Westmoreland and, and Robert McNamara had, uh, a, they wanted to have a, a measurement for success in Vietnam to give to the American people, and they used the body count as kind of their, look, we're doing well, and, and but why was that a bad thing?
1: So... Body count is one of the many metrics they they use to gauge progress in Vietnam. It was one of the easier ones. So it's one that's quickly taken up by like the press. Um, A lot of, if you wanted to simplify the way the war was going, people always asked about body count. So it's important to note it wasn't the only measurement tool in use, um, except for the most infamous. Um, And the reason why it is that, well, actually, before I get why it's infamous, the whole premise is well, if we kill enough North Vietnamese, uh, you know, whether they're People's Army of Vietnam or the insurgents, the People's Liberation Army Armed Forces, uh, they can't replace all those bodies. So yeah. we'll bleed them. And eventually we'll reach a point where they can't be combat, ineff- they will become ineffective. And so that's, so the body count's supposed to be a way to measure that progress towards the enemy being incapable of conducting warfare. Problem is, is, how do you collect that information? And it's supposed to be, you know, after an action, you count the enemy body. So, yeah. you know, we killed a dozen, there they are, there's 12. But you have people claiming more, you have inflated figures. Well, what do you do when the enemy drags uh, They're dead away? Do you count the blood trails? Is that blood trail for just one person? Is it three people? And so then you have all these inflations, and so you can't rely on body count, uh, especially when you compare it to the, like you know, captured weapons after an action. There's stuff like you know they they claimed it like forty eight kills, and you're like, but there's you, two weapons. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> are you sure? And so. Body count's like a bad way to go about gauging progress, but it's definitely one of the most prevalent ones you'll see in literature um, or in, back in contemporary uh, press. Uh, it was an easy way to simplify it, but it definitely did more harm than good. Yeah,
0: because you mean, could also and,
1: connect it to like the the violence of the war, like when it, the dehumanization of it, and that can take you down the whole like to the, like you know the war crimes yeah. area.
0: Um, and, I, and, and, you know, I, th- I think you're absolutely right when you look at press, right? You did have journalists that were very critical of what the United States was doing there. But a lot of press just bought the, com- you know, the party line, so to speak, uh, hook, line, and sinker. And they were like, look, like you said, they, they, they had like 200 kills just in this small area. This is, this is success. Look, guys. And then the American people, you know, th- this was sold to, to them. Uh to say, hey, this isn't a waste. Look at what we're doing. Here's here's the, like you said, the easiest metric that we can put in like two lines, you know, in typeset. And you know, the, the Americans people know that we're we're being successful there. Mm-hmm. Um uh but you know, you and I both know, especially, you know, that body count's not a, a really good barometer of success. Um, you know, especially oh, when you're dealing not. with a count yeah. you know. Um so we, we've got, you know, uh, we're we're trying to to sell this war to the American people, right? And, um, you know, but then Tet happened in '68, right? Oh yeah, um, everyone's favorite event of the war. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, it's 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 might be the only event of the war just because of movies like Full Metal Jacket. You know, like oh. you had you had Tet, and you know, now in, in HD 4K, right for you in your living room, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the Viet Cong, the Pavan troops, you know, there's 85,000 of them that hit major bases, major cities and, and, and important strategic uh, junctures all throughout South Vietnam. Uh, like, how were they, was there a lot of collaboration between the guerrilla groups and the, st- you know, the, I guess, the conventional forces is that, cause I mean, that's a pretty big get to get 85,000 people, you know, to move into nominally enemy territory and, and carry out that kind of offensive.
1: Yeah, so um, the communist side is highly organized and ultimately the Politburo in Hanoi runs it all. Um, so you have uh, Pavin fully supporting Plaif. Uh, people mention like Aftertent how like it's important that to know that uh PAVN troops are operating in PLA units. No, that's they're they're so well connected anyway that there's a good chance that the officers even before Tet were from North Vietnam, depending on where you're at. So they're they 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 Pavan's supposed to support PLA. So if a PLA unit is in trouble or it needs more support, that PAVN unit's supposed to be like its shield. Supposed yeah. to come in and support it. The U.S. Army is doing the same thing for Arvin and the other Free World forces. So, it, you know, it, it, to me, it always made it was always silly when people are like trying to figure out who was you know in the place units and oh, is it? The only time it really matters is it, is it a main force place unit or a local force that tells you its size, it tells you that tells you its armament, its its quality of of troops. Um, but, uh, so everything's run out of Hanoi, you had, uh, you having troops coming south as early as like 1964, I believe. And they come down, uh, for this initial, uh, general, like offensive, They're, like we can take, we can take over Vietnam There's a short window that doesn't work. So 1968 is like that next window, the second, uh, offensive for the, like, the, for Hanoi to win this war. Yeah now a lot of the myths around it are like it's a complete surprise um the u.s army and arvin you know won the battle there's a there's a whole lot of things like popular culture has gone to town with the ted offensive but the most important thing is that it's supposed to happen on the most important year for the vietnamese the lunar new year yeah um problem is there's two different calendars in use so the offensive like starts a day early in some places depending on which calendar those commanders use and hanoi doesn't even like that's the one thing they didn't think about yeah was the two different calendars they forgot that south vietnam used a different calendar and so that tips off some places but uh you you had khe under siege before it's like a distraction uh you had uh battles out than the remote areas to draw U.S. forces away from the cities, so like there's these signs that are like they're up to something. So when Tet happens, it's not so much a surprise because the U.S. Army knew something was going to happen, just not when. Yeah. So there's still a surprise element into it, but it's not like oh wow, where did all this come from? It's like oh now is the time it's going to like yeah. finally happen. Um. So depending on where you're at uh in the in south vietnam you know if you're in way it's like crazy parts of saigon it gets really crazy because they're able to make it into the city or like in the case of way take over pretty much most of it Uh, it varies in provinces uh and phu yen uh they don't make it into the city the first time um they make it in the second uh, you know later on they'll make it in the second time but they get pushed out the third time, they make it in again, but not as well. They get pushed out. So it takes place over quite a, uh, quite a long period of time. But the most important thing is that it wrecks pacification in South Vietnam. And by pacification, I mean cementing Saigon's control over the people that are contested. The people yeah. that—communists are also trying to get their loyalty, you know, attract the loyalty— well, they're they're the same people, and so it's all about control. Like, there's nothing really kind about it. It's like, no, we want these people to support Saigon one way or another. They need to support Saigon and not the communists. We don't want them feeding communists. We don't want them paying taxes to the communists or fighting for the communists. Uh, but they're caught in the middle, so it's, it's yeah, like, you know, it's a crapshoot for them. But what? having and play for able to do is wreck all these programs that are set to like build new homes infrastructure they they, they wreck a lot of that some problems not so much and they do a really good job of it like really good economy of force and they set programs back by months yeah and i know some people are like months okay that's 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 nothing but so you know there's now they have to rebuild stuff they already did they have to rebuild everything that was destroyed, so that like there's money and everything that goes to that. But then there's this false sense that there's like this window of opportunity that, because Pavin and Place incurred so many casualties, they can't resist Arvin and the U.S. Army, so they can spread pacification fast and thin and accelerate the U.S. getting out of Vietnam. But all that does is put more contested territory. Uh, under Saigon's like nominal control, it has to you know protect it with the same amount of force as it had before. Yeah, um, and in places where the Americans, uh, you know, higher up are like, oh, there's there's absolutely no communists around to defend it, and then they're like, well, no, there's just enough to make life pretty miserable. And so on the communist side, it's like, yeah, they have to you know recoup, but they have enough manpower to conduct terrorist activities. They can remind the people. They're still there, very much so. Like, they, maybe they blow up a bridge, or uh, they drop a couple mortar rounds on an, a U.S. air base, or they walk into a, a hamlet and go, hey, we're literally still here. Now, we need taxes, and it's time to be re- re-educated. Yeah. And so, for me, like, the biggest thing is telling people that, well, TET really wasn't a short-term victory, even for the U.S., because... If you look at pacification, it creates this false sense of, like, an opportunity, which, in a weird way, like, accelerates a whole lot of problems and not doesn't yeah. solve really anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like, um,
0: you know, the the northern Vietnamese forces, uh, you know, they knew that, hey, we're, you know, we're, this isn't the same as fighting the French. You know, the, the U.S. Army brings a lot of ass to fights. It just does, Right um and so maybe we can't we can't go all out but you know we could we can make things uh vastly uncomfortable for them like you know it ru- like you said it ruined those pat you know the pacification into the outer provinces um you know it's it's even even if you know you're not going to knock out uh an entire battalion or whatever but you you bloodied their nose you know like you you let them know hey we're still here um you know it it, didn't, it seemed like you know Despite all, you know, for lack of a better term, all that ass that the military brought, the U.S. military, um, you know, they really weren't prepared uh, for kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a foe that wasn't just going to go away. Like, you know, it's kind of like they were used to being, uh, you know, for lack of, you know, they were kicked around a little bit. Um, but they were, you know, they were used to it. and They used, kind of used that to their advantage. Um, so in 68, we see the first, uh, the initial peace talks, Right. Um, right. What what was the reasoning? Like, why didn't that, you know, ca- kind of uh, cement a peace and, and and get the U.S. out, you know, in, in
1: '68? So you have to to understand it. You have to like appreciate uh, North Vietnam's dedication to unifying all of Vietnam under its control. There was never. Going, with Le Duan, the head of uh, the Politburo in charge, there was never going to be like this compromise. That okay, yeah, there can be two independent Vietnams, like a North and South Korea. They were never going to let that happen. Yeah, completely dedicated under his leadership to that, you know, that that, that goal: of one Vietnam under Hanoi's control. Uh, so. A lot of it's also to maybe trying to get the U.S. out of it. Um, you know, certainly North Vietnam is not going to be mind if the U.S. packs up and leaves. It makes yeah. it a little, like, a little bit easier for them. Um, the U.S. wants to get out, but it doesn't want to like abandon at this point. It doesn't want to betray South Vietnam, and it, it doesn't want to embarrass itself. It went in there only a couple years before, like to actually win this war, the civil war for the South Vietnamese, and if it just leaves now, it's going to be, like, a failure. And there's no way to get North Vietnam to be like, oh, no, it's over, over. We'll let South Vietnam exist. So there's, like, there's no way the other side is going to agree to anything. Um and I, know, I believe there's, like, a lot of stuff going around that the Nixon administration, once Nixon wins the presidency, tells North Vietnam, uh, hey, no, tell I was it South Vietnam, I believe. Oh, maybe he tells both. Well, I'm a little... Little iffy on this, uh, but basically is it. Like, oh, don't accept this agreement. Better things will come under my government. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs> of course, an incoming president's going to
1: do that. You know, like yeah. Um, especially with Nixon, man. Who who would have thought, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm iffy on. I forget I forget which Vietnam. Which if you tell us Hanoi or Saigon, it's, yeah, that's embarrassing. But the point is, is that. There's like, I guess, evidence coming out that he sabotages it. And LB, LBJ knows this, but it's like, I, I can't, this will just make everything worse in the US. And stuff's already bad in the US. Um, so, uh, what makes me think it doesn't, that ultimately doesn't matter is if you look at Hanoi and its dedication to unifying, well, not unifying. Yeah, unifying it, Vietnam is that later on, even when they finally do come to the peace table with the U.S. and they get the Paris Peace Accords, yeah. Vietnam is still preparing for more war. They're taking a like like a short short break to replenish and regroup, but they're they're all in. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think that was um. Yeah, you know, we'll get to that part. But I was I was surprised reading about the Paris Peace Accords, like. You know, you've got international press, they're in Paris, all these important people are there. And on both sides of the, you know, border, North Vietnam and South Vietnam, like, they're just like, yeah, man, we're going to do this. And then, like, they go back to the hotel rooms, they're like, yeah, we, we need like four months, and then it's, it's on, you know, we just got to take a little time out. Um, But yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're with Tricky Dick Nixon now, right? Um, what, where did his policies in Vietnam differ from his predecessor?
1: So the big thing is that LBJ uh, just didn't know how to end it. Did, did not know how to get the U.S. In a, out in a way that would be palatable to everybody. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it, 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 Vietnam costs him another term. He makes that decision not to run again because he just can't do it, and he's not. Yeah. He does not want to be a half-assed president. He rather. Anyone else to, you know, have a shot at it because he knows that they probably would do better than he was at that point. So Nixon's big thing is peace with honor. He's going to get the United States out of Vietnam. He's going to do it soon. And he's going to do it in such a way that there's no national embarrassment. People will be happy with the, the agreement. And he promises this. And Him trying to deliver it is another issue. So with the Nixon government at the helm, you have the U.S. is already in this process of Vietnamization. After like 67, 68, there's ar- like they're already trying to hand back the majority of war fighting function to the South Vietnamese. They had taken them away, sidelined Arvin, but now they're like, oh, no, we're yeah, going to get out of here. It's, it's going to be your war again. It's kind of like the Afghans in the lead
0: program that I had to deal with uh, on my last rotation, you know? Um, yeah, I, big- I could only imagine what that whole transition was like because uh, it wasn't yeah. good for
1: us. <laughs> well, it definitely wasn't good uh, for South Vietnam because they had come to rely on the U.S. Army for so many things not just fighting the war but logistics, you name it and now these are all going away and that hurts everything. Yeah. Um, at this point uh, you're, you have like the civil operations and revolutionary sl- or rural support and that's like the, the main uh, civil military group that the U.S. forms to help run pacification or at least advise pacification. It's kind of like a shadow government in provinces. Um, and they're, you know, having to pull back assets, too. So a lot of the stuff they could once provide that they can't. So that hurts relations. Um, but the, the Nixon administration militarily is trying to leave ostensibly south vietnam in a posi- in a better position than when the u.s got there and that's where you had the border incursions into like cambodia uh, you have uh increase in like more modern u.s equipment being given to the south vietnamese um you have i mean there's a whole lot of programs are going to try to like, try to give stuff to the south vietnamese to set them up but a lot of it like in terms of like the equipment it's like a dump
0: it's like yeah. here you go
1: here you go Here you go. It's like that's not really going to help because it's not exactly what they need. Um, So it's like this, you know, the shit show, so to speak. But the the biggest thing Nixon is doing is opening up dialogue with Beijing. So if you think back to American concepts of communism being monolithic, everything controlled by the Russians. If you have an issue with communism, blame hand, blame Moscow. You need to talk to Moscow. Well, with the Sino-Soviet split, it's clear that not all communists listen to other communists. Yeah. It matters what country you're in. There's different types. There's different motivations. There's different people. There's different logic. So Nixon rightly picks up on, well, if we can talk to Beijing finally, maybe they can put pressure on the North Vietnamese, and maybe everybody will get something to make them happy that we no longer just have to deal with Hanoi directly, that we can have a stronger power get involved that they will yeah.
0: listen. Yeah, kind of like uh uh you know while you know we would kind of be like the the big brother to South Vietnam China could do it to North Vietnam and then they can carry out dialogue when things got uh you know a little you know a simmering conflict could have, you know, ostensibly blow up again, you know, but like that was kind of, uh, you know, the relationship that they wanted with Beijing for that. Um, you know, and it makes sense, uh, in a, in a, in the macro geopolitical kind of way. Right. Uh, but it's still kind of ignoring the fact that these are people that just, uh, they want foreigners out of their country and, they, you know, um, and, you know, the Vietnamese are very proud people. Um, and I don't, you know, taking, uh, you know, being kind of, I don't want to say bullied, but yeah, kind of be, like being bullied by Beijing wasn't going to go well either. Um, you know, like the Vietnamese, you know, this, these people have, you know, been in, in this part of the world for, you know, thousands of years. They, they, this is their home. You know, they don't want anybody, uh, you know, any kind of outside influence on it. So, um, you know, I, I, maybe I'm I'm just showing that like I I colonialism uh, is not just a, a European on something else kind of thing? It's also uh, uh, you know swinging a big stick politically in an area as well. You know, um, so you know we 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 have Vietnamization. Uh, you know we're we're trying to get the South Vietnamese out front of all the fighting, um, but uh, you alluded to the the excursions into Laos and Cambodia. Uh, what was the,
1: the strategic reasoning behind that? So the big so if you think about Vietnam geographically, it's uh it follows the South uh South China Sea. It's very coastal, so it's a long strip, but not very wide, and its borders are very porous. There are other countries the US can't you know directly control that and they're also going through some uh you know Various degrees of communist insurgency. They're not. They're dealing with the same post-colonial, you know, game. Yeah. As Vietnam is. It's 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 different in each place, but there are you know people nationalists fighting for other nationalists for other control. Uh, but in the case of both Vietnam's, they, they border countries where you know it's very remote. It's really hard to monitor these borders for South Vietnam uh, those borders are uh, always a source of difficulty the us tries to uh, interdict uh, stuff coming in uh, with air power or like fire bases um and those are usually where you get some of the fiercest battles with pavin and that's where like us uh, you know reliance on firepower kind of doesn't really help too much yeah and so there's are like like the ashaw valley is like this place that every US soldier dreads to go. That's, you don't want to end up there because it's so deadly. And it's, inc- it's uh, jungles and mountains. Yeah. But for the North Vietnamese, like the Ho Chi Minh Trail, like their supply network goes through like Laos and Cambodia. It goes through these countries to get around South Vietnam and then through it. all along South Vietnam's border. These like, you know, supplies are coming through. Um, and the U.S. had always tried, even like under LBJ's leadership, to stop that. But he didn't want to put, like you know, U.S. Army troops into those places. Wading the war would have just set the, you know, the anti-war movement in the U.S. Just it would have get, it accelerated. It would yeah. it was One thing that would have been suicidal for LBJ to do. Um,
0: yeah, and do you think he had the political capital to even do that? Because he. He burned a lot of it, you know, trying to get the uh, civil rights amendments through. Um, I mean, right. do you think
1: do you think he had anything left to ask to widen the war? I don't. I don't think so. I think he and his government um, put a lot more emphasis on the strategic bombing of Hanoi. I think through the linebacker campaigns. That that's where like you know. They were like, you know, they were bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, They were, you know, they had troops near the border and they were also bombing, you know, where they believe the source of all this material was coming from. And that should like you know, they thought that would work. Uh, But obviously it didn't. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't think he would have been able to pull that off. I, I don't think he would have been able to send U.S. troops into either of those countries. I don't I. I'm not gonna, you know, hypothesize what would have happened, but I, I don't see that ever being like a a point that maybe that ever got past like a closed meeting. They're like, well, yeah. there's option D, and that's this, and everyone will be like, nope. Yeah, I it,
0: the 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 Vietnam pill got progressively harder to swallow, um, you know, as the war went on. I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, and we had some pretty hawkish dudes and and places of authority at this time. I you know, I, I just can't imagine anybody going, Yeah, you know, let's get another, you know, hundred thousand soldiers into, you know, Laos and Cambodia. Why not? You know, like it would
1: have been yeah, awful. <laughs> and you I mean you had newspapers that are running like all the time like these are the troop numbers in Vietnam. Like it's gone up. And these are like the casualties, these are the, the fatalities. And so it's like, it's so in everyone's face. I could not imagine them being like, well, another 10,000 are actually going to go over in 67, 68. And well, they're only going to be in South Vietnam briefly because they're actually going to go into Cambodia. Yeah. And like, I just don't, I don't, I don't see the public being able to accept that for a moment. And I, I like to think that LBJ was, rather intelligent and would have recognized that was probably the sh- would be the surest way for him to lose full control over everything
0: yeah yeah i mean that would have been like you said it would have been a shit show that's that's the only way to describe it uh so you know luckily cooler heads prevailed at that point
1: yeah and uh, then as like nixon showed when they i mean I, if i'm jumping ahead you can we can wait oh, no. but, like nixon yeah when nixon comes in he has like that he has more like credibility in the tank, so to speak. He hasn't used up any capital yet, yeah. so he can do a little bit more. Uh, so that's when like, camp- like incursions into these neighboring countries it could happen. They have to put all these restrictions and stuff so they can tell the people that, hey, we're not occupying these, co- these countries. We're just doing a little incursion. We're going to do this, this, and this. Then they're coming back. Mission accomplished. South Vietnam's better. And so that's where you get like limitations of like, you know, the U S is only going to go 20 miles in and they're going to, you know, hit these supply areas and then they're going to be back. And it's like, was that worth it? Yeah. Um, I I remember
0: seeing a picture taken overhead uh, of the Ho Chi Minh trail. Uh, It was, it was like, I think it was like 69 or 70. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, you know a grainy black and white photo but like you see these little white dots throughout the whole thing and it's literally just uh you know it's mules or donkeys uh with candles like mounted you know on their shoulder as they're moving food ammunition and everything you know into south vietnam to get to their to their fighters um and it's like dude uh you know, you could you could do those incursions, you could drop those bombs, you could fire mortars, you can fire artillery, but nothing disrupted the the flow of goods, really. Like it might have been stopped for a day or two, but they they kept pushing, uh, you know, to make sure their guys were supplied.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of resilience in like the Ho Chi Minh Trail, like it's bombed a lot. Uh, the Chinese has engineers down there like Army, Red Army, uh, Chinese Red Army. Oh, I'm always bad with these. Uh, But there are are enough assets there from the North Vietnamese and the Chinese to, like, repair craters and roads. They can repair bridges that are destroyed. They can move wrecked vehicles off the road. They can conceal a whole lot of stuff. And so unless you plan to bomb it, like, every moment, like, every inch of it, which is completely crazy, you're never going to have stopped it. I mean, veterans have told me, like, well, if we actually put combat troops on that trail, we could have stopped it. And I was like, "Well, that was never politically feasible because, again, you'd be going back to LBJ and putting U.S. troops in like Laos, and they would have to stay." Yeah. And also, we're totally like underestimating the res- like the resourcefulness and the you know the ingenuity of the North Vietnamese. Like, what's to say? They don- literally don't carve another trail. Yeah, I mean, that.
0: yeah. I mean, and that's so. the thing when you've got a you know. A group like that, like go ahead build build those fire bases, build those those outposts along the trail, like it, like you said, even if, if it was politically viable, uh, go ahead and do that um, they would just like you said they shifted east, they shifted west, they would find a way around you because that's you know that's what you know these uh you know certain groups do They're they're, they're going to work to be successful, no matter what's thrown in front of them, um, you know, and especially with leadership like the uh you know the uh, Viet Cong had, like, they, there were some really good, not just military leaders there, but just uh, pragmatic leaders that were like, okay, well, the, you know, the US government did this. Like, they've, they've taken away these hamlets so we can't tax and we can't, you know, get food from them. Okay, well, this is what we're going to do to kind of supplement all of that. Like, there, there were just some good, pragmatic leaders there um, that, that, you know, gave them that continued success. Um, so in the United States, right? Uh, Nixon's president. Uh, The the anti-war movement really started taking off in in the late 60s and and, and was just ramping up through, you know, rocketing off as Nixon's
1: coming into power. Um, But what did some of these groups look like, you know? Uh, Like it runs like the gamut, everything from like student like groups to you have, you know, like let like you know the Black Panthers are part of like the anti-war like every every group every every let's see almost every level of U.S. society was like involved in it some way maybe not you know higher up people actually profiting from the war but a lot of college kids are getting active in it uh, it's you know I mean the, the most of the, the music coming out like all a lot of the hit songs are all anti-war. Yeah, and that shifts from like sixty five, sixty six. There's like some pro war songs coming out, but like sixty seven, sixty eight, sixty nine. It's definitely anti war, and so it's like one of those like really like amazing things is that the like the majority of Americans embrace this anti war movement and make fighting this that war so much more difficult for the U S. because they can't get away with much. Yeah, and that it's it's really hard to get. You know, there's the they're, they're, they're draft, so people don't. You know, young men don't have a choice, really. They're gonna go over there, but the morale is already like sucked out on the U, Like back home in the U.S. Like before they even get there, they're already like, "Why?" Yeah. And so the it, the anti-war movement's really, really effective. Uh, someone told me that it's a shame. You know, in the 2000s, that there wasn't something similar from when the war on terror started. That. It, you know no no one care either like we not, not enough Americans care or the u s has found a way to like fight these protracted wars in a way that the public doesn't notice as much, and so I think that spoke volumes about just how involved American society was in the anti war movement, whether it was you know just some smaller like school groups protesting to the far left ones who were like you know far more active um it yeah there's all like the the 1960s and 70s is just this explosive time of like the trust like a complete like a complete lack of trust in the U.S. government there's people that said like the LBJ administration like used up any remaining public trust Americans had I'm not too sure about that but there's, there's definitely something to be said there because the the 1960 presidential election is one of the the most insane, the Democratic uh, National Convention in Chicago. I mean, that was brutal. Yeah, the protests out there, and so there's just all this stuff happening, and see, you see all the seams of American society like fraying, and it's. I don't think they've ever gone back since, but I mean, the fabric of the United States was definitely being tested, and at the center of it is, is the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, and that's.
0: <sighs> I don't understand how they didn't see that happening. Like you you make it one of your, your victory metrics is the body count, right? Well, you're, you're forcing this in their face and, and press is like, well, we're not just delivering numbers to the people. Like we also have to put our casualty list out as well. You know? So when you see names scrolled on the local news and they go from five or six, now you're looking at 10, now you're looking at 15. Now it's just a, you know, you should have been able to see that happening, you know, and that comes with that escalation, right? Um, right. But uh, yeah, like the, those, almost every movement, uh, you know, cultural yeah, movements. And civil rights, States. too. I yeah. I've
1: touched on that. The civil rights movements happening at the same time. And that's like arguably what LBJ wants to be spending his time on. He wants his great society to actually be great. But then he has the Vietnam War. And yeah. he's having to do both. I think he cares about both. And I think the Viet- Vietnam ultimately sucks away every bit of power it can from the Great Society efforts. Um, but I mean, yeah, you have like Martin Luther King Jr. coming out against the war and LBJ feeling betrayed. Uh, it You have all these key social figures at the time being anti-war and so as much as the Vietnam War is at the center of it, like I said, I think everything around it is the civil rights movement. Yeah. And it yeah. maybe even I... shares that spotlight more than I'm giving it, which is which is fair. But like the nineteen sixties that's what like fascinated me so much because you have this war that's huge, probably the most unpopular one fought by the United States. I think of the like what people are trying to do to change American society happening at the same time. And it's and yeah, it, yeah, it's, and uh you could argue that like none of them really worked out, that they kind of hurt each other, even though they're both like the civil rights movement and all these counterculture protests and anti-war protests are all trying like connected to the Vietnam War. I mean, we're still dealing with civil rights, yeah, 2020. Uh, I'd argue we haven't learned everything we need to from Vietnam, because I mean, right after the war, it's like no more Vietnams whatever and it's like wow all that energy all that effort and what's changed yeah i
0: mean that, yeah that's a that's a good point right there <laughs> like we, we're still dealing with with uh everything we thought we kind of had tackled in the 60s and 70s um it it's like uh, you know vietnam took some of the wind out of the civil rights movement uh, but the civil rights movement still kind of uh, you know that push for change gave people the the opportunity to speak out against what became a very unpopular war, uh, because I mean, let's face it, uh, in America's history, if you spoke out against the war, you were labeled, uh, you know, anti-patriotic, anti-American, right? You're you're because you don't agree with this war, we are going to lose. You know, they they went down to the person like that, and you know, but that push in the '60s to, you know, to to you know we're talking school integration, you know, uh, other civil rights programs, you know, uh, the voting rights acts, um, you know, it kind of gave the impetus to this people that were like, Hey, we want this for African-American citizens. We can actually speak out against this war as well. Um, so I, I think one kind of gave birth to the other. Um,
1: but yeah, I mean, I mean have-
0: but Vietnam ultimately I think did take some of the, you know, that, that air out of the civil rights movement.
1: Yeah. You have, uh- like black Americans, uh, so, uh, like, you know, fighting and dying in a war. When well, back home, they're not treated as equals. And so, I mean, that's something you know, black Americans had faced in the First World War, Second World War, like Korea. And it's like another generation gets to experience this garbage. Yeah. Um, but you also had like, you know, um, you you had these the, like uh, arguably the strongest civil rights movement, probably any person could muster with all its grassroots efforts. And I think it was hard for anyone to, like, to separate, yeah, the war, just how unpopular it was, and what was happening back home with like civil rights.
0: Now, we're, we, we talked about it earlier, but the Paris Peace Accords, right? We, we, we're finally sitting down at the table um, and we're trying to negotiate peace, you know? And you had already said there was no intention from either north or south vietnam to really call it quits uh, because you know north vietnam wants a uh, united communist vietnam and south vietnam wants a united capitalist vietnam so there, there's really no i guess negotiation going on there this was a lot of it was just window dressing
1: yeah so if you go back to the end of the french the first indochina war uh you have hanoi uh, you have Moscow and Beijing force Hanoi to accept agreements. And that level of betrayal doesn't, they like, don't forget it. But that's how you get, what, But yeah, you get, ultimately, that's how you get to Vietnam. They're, like, they're supposed to have elections, they're UN monitored, and then the people will vote, and then you'll have a unified Vietnam under that government. Yeah. No, one like, communists and the Americans are not interested in that because they don't want to risk losing that election. So all that distrust, that that carries over to the Paris Peace Accords. But again, you have uh, North Vietnam dedicated to you know fighting. You have South Vietnam, who knows that the war is never it's not going to end. just it's a civil war. Um, So the U.S. just wants to get out. It wants to come up with some agreement that lets it get out without total embarrassment. And that's where we get the Paris Peace Accords. South Vietnam is not even at the negotiation table. They don't even have a seat. Anymore. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah, so, so... They're in Paris, and there's no
0: official South Vietnamese government uh, representative.
1: U.S. is acting on their behalf. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and ultimately you get this, this peace deal that, Gives North Vietnam pretty much everything it wants. It's allowed to keep uh, troops on territory they currently control to the, up to the moment the accords are implemented. They, uh, God, that's like the biggest. That's like the biggest thing they get out of it because that one matters so much. Because so, as soon as negotiations are over, you have land grab which is when North and South Vietnamese forces duke it out to try to either expand the territory they control or take over territory they don't control before the peace accords go into effect. Yeah. And so a lot of intense localized warfare happens and it's like, yeah, that's not what the peace stuff's supposed to do. Yeah. (laughs) Also, have it. Ge- this gives like Hanoi a moment to like replenish. It's, it has suffered quite a bit during the American War. It needs to rebuild. It's still dedicated to this military effort, but it also has now. I can say, oh well, we're we're doing a lot of this stuff to like re- rebuild after the war. Yeah, uh, but they're still dedicated to fighting. And so for the next, so 73 of land grab, 74, 75, there's still like these border skirmishes. And in 75 is when a border skirmish result, you know, quickly changes into a full blown invasion because North Vietnam realizes, oh, there is an opportunity here to to win this thing. Um, But until that time, you have, South Vietnam still being financially supported by the U.S. And eventually that dries up. By the time uh, Ford becomes president, U.S. Congress is not going to give a penny yeah. to South Vietnam. They want it to go away. Like, not I mean, they don't want South Vietnam to just fall apart and go away, but they want their connections to it, that memory of it, to be a thing of the past. Uh, but yeah, so the Paris Peace Accords, it's, it gets Nixon his peace with honor the US has to remove all its forces <clears throat> by a certain period it gives hanoi um the ability to control like ter- control territory in south vietnam uh and so it leaves south vietnam with all the security issues if you know it had before um but now without without that added barrier of the US army and the marines and whatever other american assets were there that they had come to I want to say enjoy, but rely on probably is a better word. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh,
0: parallels between Arvin and, and and like the Afghan National Army, uh, you know, because they, they were and still are, you know, in, in, in the terms of Afghanistan, just so dependent on our, the United States military's logistical aspects. And, um, you know, hey, if, you know, the Afghans do have an air force and so did South Vietnam, but... Where are they trained? What kind of equipment are they flying? You know, like it's it's all provided by the U.S. government. Uh, so yeah. I guess, you know, when you take the sugar daddy out of the equation there, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not going to go well for you.
1: Yeah. So like earlier I'd mentioned like, the so 71, I want to say, about 71, the U.S. realizes that a lot of the equipment it had given to the South Vietnamese was outmatched by what Russia, and China had given the North Vietnamese. The easiest comparison is that Pavin uh, had artillery that outranged any uh, anything the Americans and the South Vietnamese had, and that matters a lot on these like you know border skirmishes if you can't hit back at them. Yep. And so the U.S. is like, well, we don't have artillery to you know that can you know do that, but we have all this other equipment. We'll give you better tanks. We'll give you more munitions, more aircraft, all this like brand new stuff. At the same time, you're having uh, Israel begging for you more U.S. equipment because of the of uh, what's going on in the Middle East, and so a lot some of that's diverted. Yeah, from Vietnam. So the U.S. is like it, it, the world stage. It's like trying to manage all. It's trying to get out of one place, trying to prevent itself from getting firmly involved in another um so but for south vietnam that means aid gets sucked away and a lot of stuff they do get is not really what they need like the geography of south vietnam is not really conducive to cavalry operations yeah there's some places where tanks and apcs are super helpful but there are other places where they'll just sink yeah the province i study uh phu yen uh Anything heavier than like an M111 is just going to sink in a rice paddy. It's going to be completely useless. Yeah. And so,
0: yeah, I mean that's that's the, you know, that's one of the the big I think uh, confusing parts for mm-hmm. anybody that's not really well versed in in military operations. Uh, tanks aren't just a catch-all. In wide open spaces, great. You know, that's where you want to be. You want you want a cab unit there, an armored cab unit. Uh, but you know, in mountainous terrain, absolutely not. It's 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 like a gigantic paperweight that can fire a you know a cannon on the front off the front of it. You know,
1: um,
0: you know, that's
1: can forgive me because I misspoke. M one one three. Sorry. Okay. I have no idea what M one eleven is, but clearly my brain is not uh, on top of its game today. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, it's it's military
0: nomenclature. You can't keep them all straight. Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: But, yeah, the fact of the matter is, it's like, yeah, the U.S. gives a lot of stuff that's not the most useful for the war at hand, but it's all dependent on a logistic system that the U.S. Army enjoys that Arvin doesn't have when the U.S. Army leaves. And so so that's is, really, really important. Tried, yeah, I, was, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead, Dr. Thompson. Oh, no worries. Yeah, the, the Arvin is a mirror image of the U.S. Army. Yeah. It, it, it's designed to be the U.S. Army in South Vietnam. It all the state of the art equipment, doctrine, uh, but the problem is, is that the U.S. Army what really makes it work is logistics. Yes, and South Vietnam does not have that. So, so they didn't try. They didn't try and implement uh,
0: like a, a mirrored logistics system, uh, like they did with. It seemed like with everything else
1: not really uh it was like you'd say like infant stages for arvin if it did exist um, because again the u.s army kind of fulfilled that mission for them and yeah. a big thing to keep in mind is that when the u.s army gets involved takes over the majority of war fighting arvin is kind of put to the side they deal more with security securing areas for pa- uh, that are undergoing pacification uh and so I guess there's never really this – the U.S. doesn't see a need to give them their own logistical support or like really develop it. Yeah. So I like mean, 70 –
0: yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what the Army does. They're like, hey, we got it for you, and then wait a minute, now we're done. We got to go. And they, they kind of leave a big gaping black hole there uh, logistically, which, as you and I both know, can cause horrible, horrible uh, you know, second and third order effects for uh, you know, a military force. Uh, so 75, um, is that when we see a, a unified Vietnam, when the North goes,
1: starts heading South? Yeah. So at, at that point, um, you know, history is not inevitable that uh, uh, with those border clashes, South Vietnam had been, done a pretty decent job at holding its own. They had done fairly good back at 73 during land grab. But. Yeah, at this point the you have no american support essentially you still have a us navy fleet parked off the shore for monitoring purposes but all like the cash flow is pretty much dried up you're not getting resupplied in terms of like weapons uh you know the running like, like low on they, they basically uh yeah there's not a lot of supplies left for so there's a finite, that's a better way to put it, a finite amount for South Vietnam, whereas North Vietnam is still, like, building up. They're getting yeah. a lot of newer, newer equipment from the Soviet Union, uh, China especially. And so one of the, these border clashes, uh, Pavan actually secures a big victory. They're able to take over one of the larger cities by the border, and then they go, well, can we, can we, can we do more? this keep going let's see how yeah let's see how let's let's, let's see where this ends and then hanoi quickly realizes that like, hey we're we're slicing through here this could be it and so by oh, I forget the exact time but rather quickly you have the government back in saigon recognizing the situation is not going well that Arvin units are being overrun, they're being defeated, and there is an increasing chance that Havan is going to effectively cut the country off. It's going to split it in two, and then they're going to lose those Arvin units. <clears throat> and so, under uh, President Thu, des- he decides that instead of trying to fight for every inch of South of Vietnam, they'll pull everything south. And they'll sacrifice, basically, the central highlands and north to Pavan. Okay. And so, so it's, it's it goes from Arvin fighting its, its damnness to, to not lose any more territory to what the U.S. Army would call, like, a retrograde operation. But it's really a full-blown retreat where, like, you have civilians, you have families, you have soldiers deserting because they're like, wait, we're leaving now? Like, we're, wait, okay. They, they, see, they, they immediately assume that everyone's giving up. Yeah. So, yeah, these huge caravans trying to make it south. So in Fuyen, the province capital is Tuiwa City, and that's like the fallback point. That's where all these like, units to the north are supposed to come back, and that's going to be one of these places where they fight, like try to like, stop Pavin and also to give time for everything to keep coming south. The problem is by that time, Hanoi has recognized this is the final offensive. This yeah. is what's going to do it. So they intensify it. So you have um, mechano- like, large mechanized armies pouring in through these borders. It ends in disaster in Fuyen. And then by April uh, 1975, you have Pavan in Saigon. So the famous images of like the the Chinese made tanks breaching the palace gates and whatnot. That all happens like really, really quick for as drawn out as the civil war was, it ends comparably fast. Yeah. It seemed that way because, uh,
0: you know, the U S starts, you know, the great airlift trying to get people on helicopters, getting them out. Um, You know, and just by looking at pictures and, and, you know, some of the video snippets, you can see how helter-skelter it was. Uh, You know, so they might have had a plan to get people out, uh, but because they didn't expect, uh, you know, Pavin to get there so quickly, they just said, okay, you go here, and you go here, and then, uh, you know, it seemed pretty chaotic, um, you know, those last few days in Saigon.
1: Yeah, the U.S. had, like, a plan in place to rescue, like, the Americans. Um, Yeah, they, under, uh, no one thought, uh Pavan was gonna achieve that speed. No one thought Arvin was gonna fall apart that quickly. And it wasn't so much that Arvin itself like fell apart, it was this crazy idea of let's have everyone retreat and then take up new positions. It was just like that just threw everything yeah. on the drain. Um so yeah, and you also had the South Vietnamese who were afraid of the communists. They're afraid, like, if you work for the Saigon government like whether military, politically, whatever, you were afraid for your life. You didn't want to, you, you didn't know what was going to happen. You you worked for that government that's just about to no longer exist. And so there's a lot of crazy, a lot of a lot of South Venians had to make very difficult decisions. Are they going to flee? Are they going to maim themselves so they don't get seen as being a combatant? Um, when I was in Vietnam in 2011, uh, my tour guide he had served as an interpreter for the U.S. Army, um, and then when uh, Saigon is being overrun, his com- like his Arvin commander told him like, "Do what you have to do to make- to ensure your existence, like to to make sure that you're not going to be harmed by Pavin and that your family is going to be okay." So he cut his trigger his right uh, trigger finger off the meat cleaver, just chopped it off. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> way, he's like that way I could tell Pavin like, I can't hold a weapon. I can't fight you. Look. Um Yeah. So I mean he spent some time in a re education camp, but I mean a lot of a lot of difficult decisions. There was really no good decision because everything collapsed so quickly. Uh
0: so what would yeah. you say? That the legacy of the Vietnam War is uh, maybe not even, especially not just for Americans, but for you know the Vietnamese
1: people. Uh, so, I think so. There's a lot of depending on like where you go in the United States. There are some very proud South Vietnamese uh, communities. Whether it's like San Jose, California near New Orleans and Louisiana, or like Falls Church, Virginia, just outside DC. They're very proud. Um, I mean they all of them have great food. I'll just put that out there. Oh yeah. Great food. Um, but they're all like you'll you'll see a lot of the like, gold flag with the red bars on it, the, the flag of South Vietnam. And so like there's this very strong connection to the homeland and this, you know, sense of like loss. And if you go to, like, when I was in Vietnam, we went to Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City. But a lot of the locals still call it Saigon. Okay. Like, you say Saigon, they know what you're talking about. Um, and so it, 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 it's still kind of, like, South China kind of, like, exists still. It's, still. it's still culturally different than the North, um, but it, it ceases to exist as its own independent country. Um, for the americans i mean it you go from trying to win this war for the south vietnamese and then you have this huge influx of refugees uh so there is like this i don't know it's like it's not what the united states expected yeah so it's 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 not easy really for anybody especially the south vietnamese uh, north vietnam it gets it it unifies the country under its control it puts a lot of people into reeducation camps uh it uh, dismantles a whole lot of like the some the symbolic the cult like the culture and symbolic stuff of south vietnam like any monuments they're gone i think they've even like removed some of the cemeteries uh the only thing they really preserved is the palace they renamed it and restored it to like its tacky 60s glory but they want it to look like you know the way that when they took it yeah they're proud that they took it um but you know life goes on uh if we want to get into like what did the u.s like learn from it i'm not really sure the easiest answer is like not to do vietnam again supposedly
0: (laughs) yeah and i i I would argue that maybe the military still hasn't learned that, um, you know, let's, let's, you know, face it. The U S doesn't do counterinsurgency. Well, um, we've, you know, we, we dealt with counterinsurgents in the Philippines, uh, and it took brutal tactics, uh, that would be akin to war crimes now, you know, um, you know, we didn't do well in Vietnam. We are not doing well in Afghanistan. We failed miserably in Iraq. Um, you know, so like, I, I don't think we've learned that lesson, you know, you know um, that we, we shouldn't do the Vietnam again. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that a lot of the, uh, you know, this will probably piss somebody off, but like the hero <laughs> worship of, of oh, veterans yeah. and, and active servicemen stems from how Vietnam vets were
1: treated when they got home. Uh, you know they weren't exactly embraced. Um, no, yeah, you know they, they come home as like people seem as like maybe like losers or how could they go fight such a horrible war like totally ignoring the fact that that guy was drafted. Yeah, He, he didn't I mean, even say hey I want to go and fight communists in South Vietnam. It, it was it was more like oh I got my notice I yeah. I get to go oh great, and so like I, I have a lot of sympathy for veterans my uncle is one um he didn't really start talking about it uh until uh i got interested in it cuz i kind of i think i think that surprised him a little bit um, i remember like if he if he hears this he'll probably laugh but i remember, like <laughs> before all this if you asked him about vietnam he would just blame the french it's like the <laughs> french screwed it up
0: hmm. okay
1: and maybe i think a lot of vets to me have that too that that, that idea that sense of like yeah blame the french but i think over time they've been given more space and the like this yeah time to really like explain the war from their end some are very much well, we were winning it when i was there in certain year yeah or there's like the more academic side that you know i say more academic side they would be like well westmoreland was a damn fool uh but creighton abrams i mean he could have won that war for us if we had more time or we did x and that's what probably drove me the most insane when i was studying vietnam in grad school was like this good the the savior general hero worship stuff and i was like you know getting back to your question earlier about like westmoreland i always kind of felt sympathetic to him so was like dear lord i mean this this wasn't a Confederate general. Like he actually tried to serve the United States and do his best. And we you know he's treated worse than like Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I mean, and that's the, I think that's the funniest
0: thing when you look at the Vietnam War culturally, because you do you have you know what would are your anti-war people like? How could you go fight in this war? How could you go do this? You know, and then you had My Lie. You know that only compounds the situation, right? Yeah. Um, but then you have the more conservative elements. Like, how did you lose this war? How did you do... It's like, dude, I was a private in a, in a Marine infantry unit. Okay? I just went where I was told. I carried what I was told. And I fired when I was told. Like, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, influence on the outcome. Um, so, like, you, yeah. you had these veterans that come home. They're not really embraced by either side, uh, you know, in the American sense politically. And then you have uh, this is like, honestly, this is the first group of vets that are coming home and actively talking about their experience and, and actually, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you know, and maybe it's not called that at that point, but now, you know, uh, you know, I, I, had the good fortune of attending some 82nd airborne conventions. So you're, you're talking to paratroopers all the way back to world war II. Um, you know, and, and uh, the Vietnam guys are starting to realize, yeah, man, like we, I should have talked about it more. I should have got help, you know, when I got home, uh, because I, I didn't know how to deal with the, with my service, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and I, and I see that what we're, go- we're this, this veneration of, of service members and veterans now is, is kind of like a, a, direct result of, of how they were treated when they got home, um, you know, I, I think that's that's a big legacy because the American public went from disdaining these veterans to now a vet could do no wrong. Right. You know, and it's like, yeah, it's that, not- that is
1: that, that is true, because uh, yeah, that's probably the biggest shift from Vietnam. Like, I you know like they're you know, a lot of them, whether it happened or not, like, you know, like, oh, I was treated as like a baby killer or that was yeah. the term thrown at me. And they were like scum of the earth. That's, that's, how, that's how they all feel. Whether that like really happened to them, like did someone really spit at them at the airport? Did they really have to change out of their uniform when they landed at LAX? Did that really happen? Ultimately, I'd tell you, like, well, they feel that they were uh, insulted, that they couldn't be who they were because of their service. yeah, And they internalized all these stressors and they couldn't speak about them to anybody for so long. I think yeah we learned about that because of Vietnam but the now the flip side of it is well a veteran can do no bad.
0: Yeah.
1: Like oh well maybe they committed war crimes we don't know but they fought for the United States so we should set them free kind of like insanity and it's like that it doesn't have to be the opposite. There could be yeah. like a middle ground where like they're people they're, they they make difficult choices some make horrible choices and there are repercussions. Um, and like the same way, like not all Vietnam veterans are, you know, did the horrible things, you know, like me lie. Yeah. That some of them were like just there and like, I, I was an advisor. I, or I did this in the rear. Or yeah, I was, you know, a combat, like I saw combat, but I didn't execute any prisoners. I didn't execute any civilians. Like, because nothing is black and white. I Every, mean, there's a lot of gray. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's,
0: uh, <sighs> I don't know how we got to that point, because I'll tell you right now, this this latest round of pardons that have come out for some of these guys, uh, especially our our veteran turned contractor group that all got the free pass. I'm just sitting there like, guys, there's uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen the article on Twitter where the guys like, you know, he's they served and, and, and you know, I, I was an attorney. So I, I, I can tell you right now they never should have been prosecuted. It's like, ah, no, man no that's not how that works
1: <laughs> you know um yeah but it's like the well maybe one of the, like the like one of those tough pills to swallow from vietnam is that we've done everything like overcompensated for it yeah and we never like learned from it like it's you know that it was like no more vietnam so you get like desert storm like conventional warfare that like you know strategies dream of like large armor formations. It's swift. It's decisive. Well, they think at the time it's decisive. Yeah. But it's like oh, like what Bush remarked that you know Vietnam is like now buried in the sands of like Iraq or something like something to that effect. And all the wrong lessons. It's like we're not going to fight a Vietnam again. That problem is solved. And then everything other than you uh, know. Operation Desert Storm is hinted at. No, there's going to be a lot of these dirty wars, because if you're going to be worried about projecting U.S. power abroad and defending your interests abroad and fighting these lower-level insurgencies, you're going to have a lot more Vietnams. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. And, it, and every empire has fought them, the British, the French. And I ultimately don't think anyone's good at them, because no one has that staying power. They can't outlast the
0: other yeah so, i mean it, it's kind of hard to big be lesson. something that's homegrown like th- this is their backyard this is their yeah. home uh you know you have an outside force whether it's french british russian you know american uh you're absolutely right it's impossible to outlast them uh because even if they're you know politically divided uh they're going to have like Afghans in this case, more Afghans are going to support an Afghan group than they are going to support American forces. You know, especially when we go tearing ass through their fields, uh, where, you know, we just, it's counterinsurgency, uh, Adam Linnehan said counterinsurgency is counterintuitive. Um, and I don't think it could be described any more perfectly than
1: that. Um, and... Yeah, it's it's a tough. It's like as much as it is like a physical, it's also supposed to be like cultural, and that's really hard. I think for anyone to do, especially if you don't understand the culture. I think it's a big problem with Vietnam, is that no one understood like the the, the quirks and what was it, you know understanding why uh, the Viet Minh and then play were so palatable to some south vietnamese i mean a lot of them again felt like they were stuck between two not so great options like bernard falls says like what was enticing about the comments is that they'd come into your town and be like oh you need a new footbridge okay two days we're gonna cut the lumber we'll be back built and then done like then you get like the the south vietnamese government or like the u.s army comes in it's like okay we get uh, this engineering unit out here they're gonna survey. We're going to bring in some heavy trucks. We might crush some stuff over here, but we'll put this brand new two-lane bridge right here next to your village. And it's like, that's not what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's And then they, have to, then they have to keep it up. Like, yeah. They have to maintain it. Like, wait, why?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to be in charge of this. We didn't want it in the first place. Uh, which, honestly, that should be another noted legacy of of the war, is that... Um we didn't learn how to do counterinsurgency like i'm not even just talking about like doctrinally but if they did this in vietnam and it failed we probably shouldn't do it in afghanistan iraq well guess what we did we did not look at it and do the opposite we just went in there and did it um we offered projects that a lot of the people didn't want maybe they couldn't uh fiscally or materially support it like a lot of the dams that they built to try and generate power in afghanistan um you know like it's 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 like dude just take take a time out sir and and let's you know maybe not do a big paved road through here maybe we just get them the wells that they want maybe we just help them
1: with the irrigation canals that they need to water their fields um you know yeah, that's they... like at lower levels that's like understanding the needs it's really important like i i think like the cords model i think was used in uh, afghanistan iraq i don't know like how much of the chords experience informed. Um but it all like assumes that like the chords program like really worked in Vietnam. That's questionable. I mean it it dealt with a lot of political a lot of red tape. But it's again like you have to understand the local needs and then I think more importantly try to figure out how does that how does your opponent have an inroad here like why are they even being entertained as like a potential like you know government like what makes them better in the eyes of the people than what's in the capital yeah um i i think we could both agree. it's just
0: counterinsurgency is tricky and it's it's full of a lot of context and nuance uh and and understanding your enemy uh and yeah you know, and that's something that the United States military, I think, still struggles with a bit. Um, you know, where are we're for years we were built for peer-to-peer conflict, uh, and then we started fighting these insurgencies with a lot of still peer-to-peer uh doctrine, you know, influenced uh, you know, General Petraeus and, and his brain trust come up with our new counterinsurgency manual. Um commanders like Stan McChrystal try and implement it and you know, we, we still have mixed uh, results. Um, and now we have the, you know, we're still in the midst of the forever war, uh, which hopefully
1: uh, we can maybe someday see the end. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like that, that just reminded me, like, so the whole idea of counterinsurgency being difficult. There's like this myth about it not happening in Vietnam until like after 68 under Abrams and that it didn't have enough time the big thing I pushed back, like, no, it had it, it always been at the forefront. Counterinsurgency pacification always really mattered. Everything fell under it. Um, so it had a fair amount of time. It was just some things weren't done right. You, you know, you you have to give the communists a lot of agency because they had their own essentially counter pacification efforts that were quite effective. Um, and that, you know... You can see that happening in current conflicts. It's uh, it's easier to blow stuff up than to build it. Yeah, um, for better or worse. But then you also, yeah, like we we've, we've both been saying, like you got to you got to know what you're doing and why, and is it the the right thing at the time?
0: Yes, exactly. Know what you're doing and why. So on that note, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up, Doc. Uh, Doc <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope My we pleasure. got. Uh, I would love to have you back on. So maybe we can hit like a snippet of Vietnam, like maybe, you know, maybe a smaller portion in a, in a bigger context. Oh, um, totally. But... I'd love to be back. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So Dr. Thompson, go ahead and plug your pluggables, man. Where can we find you online? Uh, we know, you know there's a book of yours coming out. So
1: let everybody yeah. know. So I'm pretty active on Twitter for better or worse. You can find me at Dr. Rob Thompson. That's D-R-R-O-B-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N um i'm probably on it far more often than i should be uh, i do have a book <laughs> coming out uh that uh the book's coming out in may two th- yeah may 2021 um you can find it online at, whether it's uh oklahoma university press or amazon the title is clear hold and destroy pacification foo yen and the american war in vietnam it was like my dissertation, so I've been working on it for far too long, and I definitely need other people <laughs> to read it and complain about it, and not me. Um, I Also, work, like we mentioned, Army University Press. Uh, we pump out a, a really high-quality documentaries on U.S. Army history slash doctrine. Um, we have some uh, cool films in the pipeline. Uh, we're doing uh, a bunch on the Second World War in the Philippines. We dropped one, uh, I think, back in November. We're going to be dropping the second part between Christmas and early January. And then I'm working on the third installment, which is The Liberation of Manila. Um, And there's a whole bunch of others. You can find those on YouTube. Just search Army University Press, and you'll have a couple days' worth of film to watch and maybe you'll learn army doctrine I mean, yes nice if someone did
0: yes please someone else do it so like guys like me and dr thompson can just stop talking about it for a little bit because uh whether you're looking at it from an academic point of view or somebody who lived it it's very dry and just very enraging at times
1: yeah, um, we got good narrators that make it sound
0: <laughs> uh, but you can find me on twitter at bearded cynic 473 and we also have the the podcast's own Twitter, uh, at YDK history pod, where I let everybody know through GIFs what the next topic's going to be. Uh, so be on the lookout for the next one. All right. But thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we're recording on Christmas Eve. So I hope you all had a great Christmas Eve and Christmas and, uh, you know, I hope you have a great new year. So bye everybody.
1: And...